Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. At the time of recording, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is into its seventh day as we enter an increasingly brutal and drawn-out battle. In this edition, we're going to try to answer a number of important questions. Should we have seen this conflict coming and should the West have done more to avoid this war? Are we seeing a seismic shift in the geopolitical order? And does this point to a century of intense conflict between liberal democracies and an illiberal group led by China and Russia? And has the media in the West provided proper information and background on this complex issue? Or has it been clickbait and simplistic bombs mostly drawn from Ukrainian social media accounts? Joining us today, we are fortunate to have two people who thought deeply about all of this and far more. Scott Birchall is a former senior lecturer in international relations in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Deakin University. He's now an honorary fellow at Deakin. And Peter Harcher is the political editor and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Peter Harcher and Scott Birchall, welcome to Fourth Estate. Pleasure, Monica. Thank you. Now, Scott, I'd like to start with you. Many people who've been watching this part of the world for some time have watched the tension build up, uh, namely NATO expansionism, which Putin cites as having been a pressure on him to act, along with what he cites as a brutal war in the Donbass. Um, Some have predicted this outcome, not me, I have to say, I didn't think it would happen. But looking at it now and looking back at the past, say, eight years of this low-level conflict in the Donbass, did you think it would come to this? I thought there might be some activities on the border in the Donbass region. I was surprised that he went further than that. But in retrospect, when you look at what he's been saying over the last eight years, it's quite clear that he regards uh, Ukraine as a proxy state for NATO. Whether you agree with him or not is another debate, but clearly he does. And uh, the point came where he was no longer prepared to accept uh, um, what was going on in Ukraine. He was no longer prepared to um, accept the fact that no one was taking his warning seriously and that he wasn't really engaging with any parties uh, to uh, seriously address his concerns. So in retrospect, it appears to be less surprising, but I did get surprised. I was surprised by the extent to which it escalated from simply a border concern to a broader um, invasion. 
And, and to what extent do you think he was angered by the apparent ignoring of the treaty that he put to Washington in December of 2021 when he wanted these two particular issues addressed? Yes, look, I think his view is that particularly Minsk II, which is the, one of the, the key agreement that um, might have headed off some of these concerns, um, was not just neglected and ignored and opposed essentially by uh, the Ukrainian government, but he felt they were doing so under US pressure. So um, he felt he was fighting essentially a, a battle, a diplomatic battle on two fronts, not just trying to convince the Ukrainians to take this seriously and debate it as a European style solution to the problem, but he was also convinced, probably with some justification, I think, that the United States was uh, behind the scenes in putting pressure on the Ukrainians and the Euro their European partners to ensure that this didn't go uh, didn't go ahead. So he really had reached um, a block uh, in the in progress, and uh, he would say, I presume that there was no other option for him if he other than to uh, escalate to a military option. Peter, what do you think? Do you think that Putin had no other strategic choice? Do you accept that argument? Um, well, I think he'd actually achieved. Uh, his stated goal uh, with the 2014 invasions uh, into Ukraine, because if his uh, so his stated goal is that he wants to guarantee that Ukraine never joins NATO. Well, as as he would very well know, um, one of the conditions of joining NATO is that your borders are undisputed. Well, so long as uh, there was a border dispute, and that was his forces occupying Crimea, his forces occupying the Donbass region, or at least his pro proxy forces claiming them on behalf of Russia, uh, that was a dispute uh, on the border, over the borders of Ukraine. So uh, Putin would know that under those circumstances, Ukraine could never have been admitted to NATO. Mm. So I don't buy his rationale. Mm. I mean, it, it seems kind of uh, pointless looking back into the past at, at causes, but actually I think it's actually really important to look to go to go back and, and look at what's happened. I mean, in 2008 when Ukraine and Georgia were angling for entry to NATO, it's, it's fair to say that much of Europe was kind of playing dead bat to the idea, but the US was dangling that carrot. Um, now, regardless of what happened in 2014, merely taking Crimea was 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 not going to be enough in Putin's mind to stop NATO, you know, continuing or the United States continuing to have influence in Ukraine. How, how significant was what happened in 2008? Do you think in Putin's minds, in, in Putin's mind to him, Scott? Do you think it was important for him? To, is is he was he harping back in his own mind to 2008 when NATO was being dangled as a possibility for both Ukraine and Georgia? I think his main problem is um, mistrusting the United States, and you know prior to the grabbing of Crimea the role of the United States, particularly in uh, the coup, which removed a, a pro-Russian president, um, was uh, not unnoticed. I think that's really one of his key uh, issues, that um, it wasn't that the Ukrainians were initiating a lot of this. Um, he was convinced that the United States was behind it. Uh, there's some evidence, of course, that uh, there were also indigenous neo-Nazi forces behind this. But there's also clear evidence that the United States was 
working behind the scenes to ensure that the Ukrainian government was led by someone they approved of. And from his historical point of view, this is further evidence of momentum towards a further movement of Western influence. It's not just about NATO. It's about Western influence moving east towards the border of Russia. And he's a a guy who clearly has an understanding of history. Uh, It may not be one we all share, but he clearly sees it as, as he had to somehow draw a line and decide where that line was going to be drawn. And, uh, you know, he caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, Maybe he thought he would get a relatively easy military victory, but certainly for me, it seems to be that his motivation was that if he didn't draw the line somewhere, this sort of inexorable move of Western influence through NATO and through political uh, influence of the United States was moving against Russia's um, strategic and political interests. And much of that, of course, is based on his own interpretation of uh, the historical antecedents of of Ukraine. Um, What do you make of those, Scott? Well, you know, we can debate nationalism uh, for ages and uh, the fact that most states are confections which uh, don't go back very long. Many nationalist uh, narratives are based on myths and modern history and inventions, um, and that, that applies to all states. So, I'd, you know, if we go down that route, of course, you could start to question the legitimacy of many countries in the world. Um, but remember, he's probably, if he's as a student of history, he's probably thinking, well, hang on, what happened in 1974 when Turkey invaded Cyprus? Well, what happened? Did they get sanctions? Uh, did they get kicked out of NATO? Were they kicked out of the island? Well, no, to all three. So mm-hmm. he's able to, uh, you know, Turkey's able to occupy uh, northern Cyprus since 1974 without being subject to diplomatic or economic sanctions. No other state in the world recognises it, but it doesn't change anything. So he's probably thinking, well, hang on a minute. If, it's, if they can get away with it and Cyprus is in the heart of Europe, um, why can't I get away with something which is clearly has um, similar ethnic arguments behind it, but also obviously has a direct strategic interest as well? So, Peter, a lot of people would say that's just whataboutism. What do you make of that? Well. That's that's all well and good, but we've so far neglected. Um, I mean, you can always come up with a historical pretext or precedent for anything, but we've so far neglected a couple of uh, important little details, such as international law, the UN Charter, to which Russia is a signatory, the, the fact that Ukraine is a sovereign state which has been recognised as an independent sovereign state by Russia itself in 1991, the fact that uh, Russia is not only a member of the UN and signed up to the UN Charter, but is a is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, um, and yet it it has blatantly and unambiguously violated uh, all the principal elements of the UN Charter, as the Secretary General Antonio Guterres himself pointed out the moment uh, the Russian invasion began. So mm. look, um, you can you, you know you can you can buy into Putin's myth mythology. Putin has justified the invasion by saying that um, uh, Ukraine is forever part of our uh, historical, uh, social, and spiritual space. So there you go, spiritual space. You've got a, a supernatural justification uh, for invading a, a sovereign country next door. I mean, if you if you cop that, you'll cop anything. This is you don't a clear cut violation the- violation, the- violation of, 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 the, of the international law and the international charter. And if you, you don't even, even have on to his take- terms, Sorry, if I can just finish to- this thought, Scott. Um, Sorry. It, even on his, even if you accept his terms, 
Um, and Scott's earlier point that uh, he saw an inexorable slide uh, of Ukraine out of his orbit into into the West, into Europe. Um, even if you accept uh, that pretext, uh, accept that uh, as a point, well, the greatest influence in accelerating Ukraine's uh, move into the Western orbit was Putin's invasion of Ukraine in 2014, because before that, support among the Ukrainian public for joining NATO was, uh, in opinion polling, was fewer than 20%, less than 20%. But, but recently, after Putin's invasion of Ukraine in 2014, public opinion was over 60%, uh, close to 70% in favour of joining NATO. So it's Putin's aggression that has pushed Ukraine towards the West more than any other factor. So all of this is a pretext. And my final uh, final sentence on, on this, Monica, is we, we've talked about the past a lot. I think Putin's immediate political future was probably at least as big and possibly even greater a factor in this. In what way, Peter? What, what makes you say that? Well, he's a politician facing re-election um, the year after next. And, uh, you know, he's got... He's got a number of problems, including the stagnation uh, in the Russian economy, including the fact that uh, he's got uh, the the key opposition leader, of course, Alexei Navalny, um, locked up uh, and a protest movement that he's managed to repress, but that uh, there's a strong strand of protest uh, thinking and anti-regime thinking running through the country that uh, he's keen to continue repressing. And the evidence for that is that even as his troops have been moving into Ukraine in this last week, he's had Navalny in the Russian courts on more yet more trumped-up charges to keep him in jail even longer beyond the next election. So that's clear evidence that he's got you know he's got the domestic uh, opposition in mind. Now you know he knows from 2014 that if he wages war on Ukraine, his opinion polling goes up and his popularity in Russia goes up. I mean, he's just another politician. And so, there you go. <laughs> Scott, what, what do you make of that? Do you think that domestic uh, concerns have factored into this? Well, um, it, I'm sure they, in all politicians, are concerned about their political base and the levels of support. Um, I'm not sure he's calculated well in this case because uh, um, he may have been surprised, I think, by the anti-war movement in even if it's in its embryonic form within Russia uh, today. Um, but, uh, yeah, sure, of course he's concerned about that. But, uh, you know, he doesn't even need to look at history. He can see uh, Mr Trump recognising uh, uh, the illegal acquisition by Israel of the Golan Heights, which is part of Syria. And this is, this is not history. This is re- very recent, something that the Biden administration, for example, has gone on to uh, uh, continue to acknowledge clear violation of international law, a clear attack on anything you might call the rules-based international order. We had Trump's attacks on the International Criminal Court. So, you know, I think we're no, we're, the West is in absolutely no position to lecture uh, Putin on international law or violations of sovereignty. We do many more than he has. We perhaps, um, you know, and, and we do them much more violently. So um, that's all very well. We can have, you know, you have a discussion about that, but really um, we're in no position when you look at Libya, you look at Iraq, Afghanistan, you look at Serbia, you look at East Timor, Western Sahara today, 
uh, we're in West Papua. We're in no position to be start to be raising these questions about international law and the status of the uh, you know rules based international order because we're the worst offenders by a long way, by a long way. I mean, we just hope that the casualties in Ukraine don't reach the levels in Gaza City or Raqqa. Mm-hmm. Um, we just hope that's the case. And they're, of course, the ones that we're responsible for and, of course, the ones we should give priority to because we can actually change them. So do you think that he, he's just kind of miscalculated here what the the, the noise uh, would be around what he's done, that he thought that the West would would kind of, there'd be a bit of noise, but ultimately they do, we, the West wouldn't do end up doing very much. Peter, can I put that question to you? Um, I'm Probably he's as surprised as the rest of us that Germany has reacted as swiftly and decisively as it has. Uh, it, it took um, about uh, took less than 72 hours for the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, um, a centre-left leader, for goodness sake, uh, to abandon uh, post-war pacifism, Germans, Germany's entire uh, philosophy of post-war pacifism and post-Cold War inertia on security and defence policy. Uh, it's it was an astonishing transformation. He has uh, not only uh, dumped long-standing and deeply held German policy about shipping arms, uh, so that you know he's de- Germany decided um, within 72 hours not only to directly supply uh, defensive munitions to Ukraine, but also uh, to dump its long-standing ban on allowing uh, third countries. So, for example, German-made. Uh, equipment, uh, uh, defence equipment, missiles, guns, whatever that it's had sold to Estonia. Estonia wanted to send to Ukraine to support the Ukrainians in the last week, but they were banned because it was German equipment, and the Germans have this uh, uh, ban on their customers, third country, third countries exporting uh, their their goods, their military goods without permission. Well, Germany's now dumped that provision, and any German arms in the world can now be sold on to Ukraine. But much, you know, above and beyond all all of that, is that he has dumped uh, the, uh, the, the the unofficial guidance on defence spending, which had limited German defence outlays to one percent of GDP for many years. Announced that it would be doubled within three years, and as an immediate advance on that, put a hundred billion euros uh, on the table in the Parliament and said, "This is going to be our immediate increase in defence spending." So, um, so, Peter, is is that to you more significant? What Germany has done is that more significant in your eyes than the array of other sanctions that have been imposed that are utterly crippling the Russian economy? Well, the transformation of Germany, which is of course the superpower of Europe and uh, and the centerpiece uh, of Europe, the transformation of Germany within three days has been astonishing and surprising to people around the world, including, I suspect, to Vladimir Putin. But as, as for the effectiveness of sanctions, I think that the two killer sanctions for uh, Putin are number one are financial. Number one, so far at least, number one um, was the decision by uh, the Europeans and the US and associated allies to shut the Russian central bank out of the global financial system. Mm-hmm. This means that the carefully stockpiled 630 billion US dollar foreign exchange reserve that Putin had built up in his central bank in anticipation 
of just such a day is largely unavailable to him. Uh, only the reserves that he's holding uh, with with China and in Chinese-denominated assets might be readily available if the Chinese decide to go ahead and honour those, which I assume they will. The rest will largely be unavailable to him, and that means so the ruble collapses, the central bank can't intervene, it won't have the firepower to, to keep supporting it. That means they can't afford the, the imports that they need. That is, in the words of a former US official I talked to this week, David Asher, who's been involved in many financial sanctions campaigns over the years, he said that's an economic act of war. And it is interesting, isn't it, that we are seeing, I think this quite possibly for the first time, where you have military warfare up against economic warfare. Scott, uh, how do you see that? And and who comes out on top? Because surely somebody has to. Sanctions can work two ways. Uh, They can, in fact, uh, obviously cripple your economy and the Russian economy is under enormous stress through the banking system, as Peter explained. But they can also galvanise people behind the leader. They can actually push people together in a common uh, against a common enemy you uh, you know it, it's not hard for uh, you don't even have to be a demagogue really to you can be just a populist to sort of gather public opinion on your side against these external threats um, so you know they can work both ways um, economic sanctions in the past have been used obviously against South Africa and they were effective uh, particularly in the finance sector although you can't underestimate the Uh, work done by the ANC, the PAC, and all the other anti-apartheid groups on the ground there. So it was a combination of the two. Um, I guess the question then is uh, how much, you know, does this narrow the time frame that he can, that he has to achieve whatever he defines as victory um, in Ukraine? You know, does he, is he having to push this harder than faster than he probably otherwise would be because, um, Russians are now finding there's no money in the ATMs. Uh, they can't use their credit cards. There's long queues outside the banks, trying, people trying to get their money out. So uh, maybe what in the short term the sanctions will do is drive people to a common sort of common center, sense of where the we're being isolated, we're being picked on again. But also um, this is for Putin um, narrowing his uh, time frame for uh, whatever he has in mind when he talks about victory in Ukraine. So do you think any of that, though, indicates that that just will harden people's views towards him? They're already pretty hard in some quarters, um, that, that that this is just going to uh, entirely destabilise his regime? Look, it's really hard to know how um, thorough the anti-war sentiment is. Clearly, the middle class is going to be affected because it, it's used to now um, you know, buying its goods and the consumer markets in the same way everyone else is in a, in relatively affluent Western societies. Um, so they will be uh, noticing something that the censorship of their media is not telling them, and that is that something is really untoward is going on here and we're being severely punished by external forces. But as we know, uh, in Russian history, uh, having the world against you is not something that they uh, quickly buckle in the face of. So um, Putin's task will be twofold. One is to carry on a successful military operation in Ukraine. And secondly, assure the public that the short-term pain that they're experiencing is, uh, is not going to last and that it's, uh, it's something that uh, the world um, 
tends to always uh, use against us when because they don't understand our interests. Of course, it's not just economic pain, though. Uh, I was talking to a friend in, in Russia last night who said, um, at the moment, people don't care, but once those coffins start coming back, they'll care, and that's when he's going to be in deep trouble. Uh, Peter, do you see, uh, from the way you're looking at this issue, that his his regime may get uh, may, may topple, may get so um, unstable that um, that his own people will move on him. Oh, it's entirely possible. Uh, history is full of such such events, and if, if recent events, starting with perhaps the election of Donald Trump, haven't taught us uh, that anything is possible, <laughs> then nothing will. I think we just should have accept that anything now is possible in world politics. Um, mm. Look, it is a distinct possibility, of course. Uh, there will be food shortages. There will be hardship. Uh, they won't have energy shortages, but they'll have a lot of other shortages um, if these economic sanctions are kept in place. Um, and if, as you say, it turns into another Chechen, Chechen war or another uh, you know, Russian invasion of Afghanistan scenario where it's long, difficult uh, progress and where bodies are coming home in the thousands, then yes, it's entirely possible that that combination of forces could topple his regime. And Monica, I realise I nominated in an earlier answer to you that there were two killer financial sanctions. I only nominated, listed one. The second one is Switzerland's transformation. Um, Switzerland, for the first time, has joined Europe and the West. It's, it's effectively dumped its neutrality and certainly dumped its banking secrecy laws and said, we're going to sign on to your banking sanctions against Russia, Putin, and his cronies. And uh, financial sanctions uh, experts say that much of Putin's money, maybe most of it, that he's been, uh, you know, a, the great kleptocrat has been has been pulling out of the Russian economy for more than 20 years now, is in Russian, sorry, Swiss bank accounts. It must be not only personally deeply disturbing uh, to Putin that now those accounts are frozen. Uh, if they're in any way identified with him or his cronies, including the the, the, ch the cellist, the famous, famously and inexplicably wealthy cellist, who's known as Putin's wallet, who's been uh, uh, named as having uh, an estimated net worth of 3.3 billion US dollars. I don't know about how many cellists you know who <laughs> who have 3 billion US dollars in assets, but it seems like a lot of fast fiddling to me. But that's just it's just one example. So. Uh, it's not just Putin's money, but I think the larger signal this sends is the, these sanctions increase the cost of, to anybody of being close to Putin. If any oligarch or anybody is close to Putin uh, and Putin is enriching them as a result of their loyalty, their assets, their, safe, their, their ability to move around the world, their ability to travel, to use their assets outside Russia uh, is now under threat. So to, to, to go to your question, is this regime uh, at risk now? Well, that's yet another factor that will, that will discourage powerful people wanting to be close to Putin. Uh, Scott, what uh, role do you think the, uh, the oligarchs will play in all of this? Well, almost all of them have close links with Putin. So um, it's the absence of going of an alternative, which is his, one of his great strengths, of course, is the elimination of political opponents, discrediting of political opponents. Most of those oligarchs who have made their uh, billions have done so only because of his position. 
So, um, you know, if he goes down, they go down. If he goes up, they come up again. Uh, they've obviously laundered their money through London. And I noticed that uh, the British government is giving them a stay of execution uh, to, in one of the banks there to, uh, to uh, pending any events that might come up. But can I just say one thing about the German sanctions or the German uh, decision to change its uh, military position here in terms of exporting arms? Um, that, that is significant. I agree with Peter. It's a very important change, but it also works another way. Um, it's not going to go down well in, in Russia to find that they are up against German armaments after the, they have memories of World War II or the Great Patriotic War, as they call it. Um, I, I, um, I thought that decision by Scholz was very naive. And I think, uh, um, you know, he's obviously a leader on his, with his training wheels at this point. He hasn't been around long. But if you were uh, Putin wanting to gather public opinion behind you against the pernicious influence of the West, uh, having Germany selling uh, armaments to your uh, military opponents is a, a temptation to exploit, I think, that will, he'll find hard to resist. Can I ask you both, actually, on that point of Germany, whether you think that had Merkel still been uh, Chancellor, A, this would have happened, and B, what her reaction might have been? Peter? Well, she'd uh, a hallmark of her time was to, to go out of her way to avoid antagonising Putin. Uh, not, and not just Putin, she'd also uh, notably cultivated Xi Jinping's China. Um, she would have been reluctant, I think, very reluctant. All her instincts would have been to resist this course. But if you look at the change in public opinion in Germany and across Europe, in fact, across most of the world, there is just such absolute outrage at what Putin has done. He's just violated every conception of not only international law, but you know, humanity that uh, I think any leader of Germany would have been forced to react. And uh, I suppose it's just such a surprise in, in Germany's particular case at this moment that it happened so quickly and under um, a centre-left leader who'd been very timorous about Russia, China, uh, been reluctant to say a, a critic, breathe a critical word, and it transformed in 72 hours. It was the speed and the the uh, decisiveness with which he moved that really that really amazed me. Mm. But to answer your question, yeah, I think Merkel would have been slower and more reluctant. Mm. Scott, what do you think? Um, well, I think Merkel would stand up to the Americans as well. Uh, unlike uh, Scholz, who's not in that position yet, but we, um, I suspect, she would have been forced to impose sanctions like everyone else. Whether she would have started exporting military equipment to Ukraine, I think, is, a, is highly unlikely. Uh, but we also need to understand there's another issue at play here, and that is uh, uh, Russian gas supplies to Western Europe mm. and uh, how uh, whether or not Mr. Putin turns off the gas spigot um, is an issue we have to um, consider. If it had been obviously early winter, it might have been a very different scenario. Uh, they're obviously moving into spring and, and summer, but... Um, there's no easy alternative to the massive energy supplies that Western Europe uh, buys from Russia in the short term. And uh, that's an issue else that Putin has not yet um, dangled in front of them, but he may well do. Mm. Okay, let's just move on to a final area of questioning, the, the main game. What is it here? I've got my views, but I'm really interested in hearing from both of you. You know, is it a reordering of great power? Are we, are we 
moving into uh, a different world, one that is shaped by China and, and Russia on the one hand and the United States and, and Europe on the other. Peter, can I start with you on that one? I think there's only one man on the planet who can answer that question. Um, unfortunately, Monica, it's not me, not even Scott. Um, <laughs> it's a fellow called Xi Jinping. I think he is the pivotal figure in, he is the hinge uh, in deciding which way the world swings on this. At the moment, so obviously we know that China is is the dominant partner in that partnership with Russia. Its economy is almost exactly 10 times bigger, 16 trillion US dollars annual GDP versus Russia's 1.6 trillion, which is a, it's about the same size as Australia. So China is by far the dominant partner. Now, uh, with all these sanctions being applied to Russia today, China has the ability to either step in uh, as the banker of last resort and fully support and supply uh, Russia and therefore rescue Putin and keep his regime alive, uh, or he, he could go entirely the other way, decide that Putin's now radioactive uh, and break the relationship or somewhere in between. But all those options are available to him, and the, the first of those, to fully support and embrace Putin in the face of global sanctions must be tempting because he would be able at this point to turn Russia into a full vassal state at a very discounted price <laughs> um, and make it a, you know, a, a, a true, a true uh, subordinate uh, dependent on Xi Jinping himself. But, you know, to, to do that would, would mean that he would have to be ready to accelerate his confrontation with the West and he may not be ready for that. Right. Okay. And and do you think it's now clear that China, for example, knew that this action in Ukraine was going to happen? You convinced of that now? Well, I think he must have had. Uh, they must have had some discussion about it. Uh, I don't know how far it went, of course, but um, military analysts have pointed out again and again that uh, some of the troops that Russia has put onto, onto Ukraine's border and now into Ukraine were moved from Russia's borders uh, with China. And I'm assuming uh, that they would have discussed that at, at, the, at the opening night of the Beijing Olympics where Putin turned up, <clears throat> shook hands with Xi Jinping, and they declared their so-called no-limits pact. Um, I'm assuming that they discussed there that Putin would have said to Xi Jinping, um, I'm going to be moving some troops uh, to my east. And uh, I don't know how far he went in explaining the rationale, but would have looked for some reassurance that uh, first he would have seen an obligation to explain to his new best friend, although they've called each other best friend for years now, but also to uh, to get some dispensation to make sure that China would do nothing to take advantage of that. Mm. Scott, what's the main game here? What are we looking at? Um, just a couple of points. One is I think Putin's surprised by the international reaction when he moved into Georgia and Chechnya. The West didn't seem to care very much. Um, so he's surprised by the difference here. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't uh, respond to public opinion in the same way the West does. So he um, probably thinks he has a freer hand. Um, and one other point about, remember, we've been hearing all these stories that, that under the coverage of uh, or the cover of the Ukraine war, China would retake Taiwan. I think that was a, one of the um, great uh, journalistic blunders of the, of the uh, period. Um, there's no evidence that this is going to happen. Um, and uh, those who 
push that line should explain why they actually, what, on what basis they make the claim. And the final point I would make is we now have a million uh, refugees in Ukraine. And if you want to get the attention of the West to resolve an issue, particularly Europeans, even though uh, they may be well, more well disposed to Ukrainian refugees than they are to Syrian refugees, the mass movement of people across borders and into neighbouring states is going to be one that a factor that uh, will also encourage, I think, some of the countries in the region to seek an early and encourage an early resolution of this conflict for, no, for any, regardless of whether others want to push it back and keep bleeding Putin as long as they can. So mm. keep an eye on the refugees issue because I think uh, the numbers are just escalating um, yeah, every day. Mm. And a final question, uh, truly a final question to both of you, in terms of the media coverage of this war in the last week, uh, Peter, what do you make of it? There's been a little bit of criticism about, but uh, it hasn't been that loud. But, you know, if, you, if it seems to most people that what we're seeing in terms of media coverage is almost entirely from Ukraine's perspective, um, what do you make of what you've been reading, seeing, hearing? Well, it, it has largely been uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, that's true. Um, partly that's got to do with the difficulty of uh, independent media operating freely within Russia. Um, but it's natural, I suppose, that um, in, a, in a war, you, the, the journalistic and news interest is, you know, the, def, the basic definition of news, I think, Monica, is what's going wrong in the world. And so you go to where the thing is going wrong, and the thing going wrong is in is in Ukraine. So I think that's you know entirely natural and normal and to be understood. Um, broadly, I think it's been pretty good. I, I think uh, there's with some there have been um, some flourishes of uh, of uh, excess, but broadly, I think it's been uh, reasonably straight and reasonably factual. Mm, okay, Scott. Um, I think we assumed that somehow this war would just be a blitzkrieg and therefore um, when it didn't live up to our expectations, we decided that Mr Putin was failing. Uh, I think we ought to reconsider that and that he may in fact have a very different idea of how to impose his will uh, in Ukraine. Uh, a couple of points. Uh, if you want to get more information out of Russia, why censor their uh, TV and radio stations in the West? I mean, you know, the, the crazy... Uh, banning of Russia TV or Russia Today is in the West is just simply a show of some sort of lack of confidence that we can't um, be exposed to views that may be different to the ones that we're supposed to absorb. Um, and the cult of Zelen uh, Zelensky is interesting. Um, he's being portrayed as a as a sort of some new Gandhi or new um, master. Uh, of the of the 21st century um, it's interesting how the west tends to focus on individuals because that's the easiest way of presenting uh, things but it would be nice to have a little bit more balanced view about um, the administration of president Zelensky, some of the people behind him for example uh, rather than just portray him as this incredibly courageous person almost single-handedly standing up to the uh, russian army well, he certainly is courageous. Um, but do you think that the overwhelming Ukrainian social media presence, clearly a win for it, but do you think that's kind of driving expectations both in the West and inside Ukraine, that Ukraine will win this? 
Well, it's driving it in the West, but it's it's kind of irrelevant because, yeah, okay, we're fully embraced of social media and we form views based on this, but that has no impact on what events in the ground, on the ground are occurring in Ukraine today. And I'm sure that Mr. Putin's least concern is the uh, impact of uh, some of these uh, um, TikToks and uh, you know, YouTube videos that are circulating around. He knows that he has the upper hand militarily. He's obviously got a particular strategy. It may not meet the expectations that we have about how he was going to conduct the war, but that's our fault, not his. So I think we need to have a more objective analysis and we need to avoid things, you know, exaggerating deaths and uh, be very sceptical about the casualty rates on both sides before we start drawing any conclusions about whether or not the campaign is going well for uh, for the Russians or for the Ukrainians. But clearly the numbers would suggest that at some point in the next week, uh, the, the Russians will be in control of as much of the territory of Ukraine as they want to be. Peter, any final comment from you on that? Well, just to, I would certainly agree that uh, social media uh, is, is a very short-sighted, uh, fast-moving phenomenon that uh, over that simply exaggerates the, the, the present moment and has a great deal of difficulty establishing, uh, you know, any sort of real perspective, uh, you know, absolutely. So you get all sorts of distortions and exaggerations. But uh, on Scott's point that Putin doesn't care um, what, you know, the impression is of him or whether his campaign is successful or failing or whatever, um, I would I would disagree with that. Uh, Putin's one of the, the fundamental and consistent elements of Putin's modus operandi from day one has been to always appear tough, always appear strong. Strength is, you know, whether it's him taking his shirt off to flex uh, or whether it's the intimidation uh, that he's used in this slow military build-up. Uh, three times in the last month uh, threatening nuclear war, either directly or uh, hinting at it, all of this and all of the other bluster is all designed uh, at looking tough and strong. And anything that undercuts that uh, injures his in entire tough guy projection and the basis on which he's built his reputation as a fearsome strongman. Mm. Well, on that note, um, I'll, I'd like to say thank you to both of you for the conversation. It was fascinating. Um, and I'm sure that we'll... Uh, We'll come back to both of you at some point in the next uh, in the next month or so. We'll see how it all goes. Thank you both, uh, Scott Birchall. Thanks, Monica. Harcher. Pleasure, Monica. And on that note, I'd like to thank Scott Birchall and Peter Harcher for being on the program. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, who we thank for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Evan, and the executive producer, Anthony Dockball. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.